Good morning, everybody. Isn't this good? I love it so much. Open your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, my name is Tim Harris. I'm pastor here. If you're new, glad that you're here. I, I'm so, I, I preached long yesterday. I know it did. And uh, I, I, I thought a lot about it yesterday. And I, I thought about it. I, I'm starting to think maybe I preached normal and y'all were listening slow. <laughs> I think that's the problem. So if y'all, if y'all step it up a little bit, maybe we'll get out of here a little bit earlier. 1 Samuel chapter 7, I want to talk about the revival at Mitzpah today. Look at the Old Testament revivals here in our daytime services, the revival at Mitzpah. 1 Samuel chapter 7 is where I'll begin. Listen to the songs that I love so much today, I, I do. These are just the songs of my life. Uh, but then just thinking about it, um, Midnight, Midnight Cry, which is this first song that uh, Dennis and Rhonda sing today. Y'all know that song was written in 1986? I'd been out of high school three years. Some of you had already had your first hip replacement. I mean, you know, 1986. um, uh, Till the storm passes by. That's an older one. That's 1973. Some of you had already been married, right? Just interesting because we, we, we call them old songs, but they're no older than we are, you know, which, which is interesting. Uh, just reminding you that uh, these are the songs of our life. They may not be the songs of our children and grandchildren's lives. They'll have their songs any more than these songs we love weren't necessarily the songs of our parents, you know, heart. Uh, and that's okay. It, it's just okay. The song we've sung twice this week already, which I love so much, uh, Yet not I, but Christ in me. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, that's a brand new song, you guys. I learned that at camp with the kids three years ago. So that's a song they've given us. Um, so let's show them some grace, um, and, and let's make sure that they learn to love Jesus, and then we'll just sing together one way or the other, you, you know. But uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7 is where we'll look at the revival today. Um, Y'all know me, I I wanna read all of 1 Samuel to you, but I can't, but uh, turn it, just while you're looking with me, turn back to 1 Samuel chapter four, not gonna read it, I just want you to see something. 1 Samuel chapter four, there's a larger story here, and in 1 Samuel chapter four, the the Israelites, of course, are at war with the Philistines, they always are, in some ways they always have been, they still are, Y'all know that etymologically, I mean, it's, it's basically the same word. Philistine is Palestine, right? It's Palestinian. So it's the same people. Y- y'all know that, right? It's, it's literally the same people. Philistines, Palestines. I mean, you know, uh, there's a straight line uh, from, from these tribes to the tribes today. And so way back in Samuel's day, they were at war and the Philistines conquered uh, the, the people of Israel in a, in a humiliating and terrible defeat because they also captured the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what I want you to see is where this happened because it's going to matter at the end of today's story. Uh, there was a particular location where the Israelites was, were camped when this terrible defeat happened. And where was it? Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Where were they camped? Ebenezer. It's a place called Ebenezer, and Ebenezer is, for the people of Israel, the site of their worst defeat. I just want you to know that. I want you to see that. And at that time, 
the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. If you read on, it, the, the Philistines thought they got something really good when they captured the Ark of the Covenant, right? I mean, that was Israel's trophy. That was the representative of Israel's God, and they thought, we've got him now. <laughs> and boy, did they ever. Y'all know this story, right? So they parked the Ark of the Covenant right next to their big old God. I think his name was Dagon. Is that right? At this gigantic idol, their God, Dagon. And they parked, you know, the itty bitty Ark of the Covenant next to their gigantic idol of the God, Dagon. And what happened? Every morning they would come back and what had happened? Dagon kept falling over. He kept falling over. It's as if Dagon himself couldn't stand there without bowing to the God of Israel, right? I mean, Dagon, their God just kept falling over. So eventually they realized this isn't working at all. So they, they, they transferred the Ark of the Covenant to somebody else. They just put it out in, they, they found a town out in the sticks and said, let's park it out there in so-and-so's garage. And that's what they did. They parked it in a barn out in the country. And then what happened? Everybody around those parts got cancer. They got terrible tumors and they thought, oh my goodness, we, we, can't, we can't keep this thing, we can't have this thing. So they just sent it back to Israel with, with a fruit basket and some gold and an apology note. They sent it back. They don't want it. They could not stand in the presence of a mighty God. And so where we start at 1 Samuel chapter seven, understand the Ark of the Covenant's come home and it's been home for about 20 years before revival comes. 1 Samuel chapter 7, we're gonna, I'm going to read this whole chapter, and, uh, and y'all listen fast, and we'll get out of here earlier. 1 Samuel chapter 7. So the men of kiriath came to get the ark of the Lord. They took it to the hillside home of Abinadab and ordained Eleazar, his son, to be in charge of it. The ark remained in kiriath for a long time, 20 years in all. And during that time, all Israel mourned because it seemed the Lord had abandoned them. What's the key word in that verse right there? Seemed. It seemed. Seemed. He had not abandoned them. It seemed that the Lord had abandoned them. Verse 3. Then Samuel said to all the people of Israel, if you want to return to the Lord. Okay, that's why we're doing this. What's the important word in that phrase? If. If you want to return to the Lord with all your hearts, get rid of your foreign gods and your images of Astoreth. Turn your hearts to the Lord and obey him alone. Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites got rid of their images of Baal and Astoreth and worshiped only the Lord. Then Samuel told them, gather all of Israel to Mitzpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzpah and in a great ceremony drew water from a well and poured it out before the Lord. They also went without food all day and confessed that they had sinned against the Lord. It was at Mitzpah that Samuel became Israel's judge. And when the Philistines rulers heard that Israel had gathered at Mitzpah, they mobilized their army in advance. You knew they would. The Israelites were badly frightened when they learned that the Philistines were approaching. Don't stop pleading with the Lord our God to save us from the Philistines, they begged Samuel. So Samuel took a young lamb and offered it to the Lord as a whole burnt offering. He pleaded with the Lord to help Israel, and the Lord answered him. 
Just as Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines arrived to attack Israel, but the Lord spoke with a mighty voice of thunder from heaven that day, and the Philistines were thrown into such confusion that the Israelites defeated them. The men of Israel chased them from Mitzpah to a place called Bethkar, slaughtering them all along the way. Samuel then took a large stone and placed it between the towns of Mitzpah and Jeshana. He named it, say it, Ebenezer, which means stone of help. And he said, up to this point, the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and didn't invade Israel again for some time. And throughout Samuel's lifetime, the Lord's powerful hand was raised against the Philistines. The Israelite villages near Akron and Gath that the Philistines had captured were restored to Israel along with the rest of the territory that the Philistines had taken. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites in those days. Samuel continued as Israel's judge for the rest of his life. Each year he traveled around, setting up his court first at Bethel, then Gilgal, then at Mitzpah. He judged the people of Israel at each of these places. Then he would return to his home at Ramah. He would hear cases there too. And Samuel built an altar to the Lord at Ramah. Y'all ever heard of Swedish death cleaning? Because I think y'all would like it. Swedish death cleaning. It is uh, a Scandinavian custom. It is sort of becoming something that people are talking about uh, because it is a way of uh, decluttering your life. But it's the sweetest concept. The idea being one of these days you're going to die and somebody's going to have to deal with your mess. And no matter what else you've done in your life, they're going to end up remembering you for all the junk they found in your drawers and your attic and your garage, your children and grandchildren love you now, but when they have to clean out your barn, they're gonna think that old man was crazy. This whole time, he was crazy. They're gonna clean out from under grandma's bed and think, good night, what was wrong with this woman? They're gonna go down in your basement and open shoe boxes where you have continued to keep old canceled checks from the 50s, somebody's going to have to deal with all of your mess, and they're going to change their opinion of you. Some of you have done it for your own parents, and you know what I'm saying is true. You thought your dad was the smartest man in the world, and then you looked under the seat of his truck and found moon pies from when Jimmy Carter was president. And you think, what, what was wrong with this man? What was, what was he thinking? So the Swedish have a custom. They call it death cleaning. They have a word for it. It's a Swedish word. It means death cleaning. <laughs> and the idea is you take care of your own mess. That's their custom. You, not somebody else. You, your mess, clean it up. So before you die, you do your own death cleaning. You sort of act like your kids or grandkids one day when they walk in your house and they open that junk door in the kitchen and say, what is this? 
and they turn the whole thing upside down in the bin. Because it's all junk. It's all junk. You have ashtrays from the Village Inn restaurant. And the Village Inn closed when I was in fifth grade. Am I right? You got garbage and junk and it's your mess. Where did it come from? Well, the Village Inn, you know, and every place else you've been, all the vacations where you picked up junk, all the Christmases where people gave you clothes you never were going to wear. My daddy's closet, in the back of his closet is every shirt I've ever given him with the tag still on it. You know, why, why did we ever get dad anything for Christmas? He doesn't, he always tells us, I don't want anything, but we think we got to get him something. We shouldn't. Because one of these days, I'm going to have to clean out all that stuff I gave you. I'm going to have to clean it out. Y'all know what I'm saying? I think the Swedish are onto something. I'm not making this up. Google it. Swedish death cleaning. There's a book if you're interested. It'll tell you how to do it. But I think you know how to do it. You sort of have to get ruthless with all the stuff that you've accumulated. I know, I know, it's junk, but it's your junk, you know? And and, and that's the thing. I I got stuff, my wife says, why are you keeping that? I keep every card anybody ever gives me. If you've ever given me a card, I kept it. And Casey says, didn't you read it? Yes. Can I throw it away? No. What are we going to do with it? We're going to keep it. Where are we going to keep it? I'll say, just give it to me. And then I hide it so she can't throw it away. Because I know, I know, it's just a card. It's just a card. But it's my card, you know. And it doesn't mean as much to you, but it means something to me. But one of these days, somebody else is going to have to do something with every Christmas card I've ever gotten in my life. And what are they going to do with them? They're going to throw them in the trash can and they won't even think twice. All those clothes I keep because I think, well, that's going to come back in style. You know, it's all going to go to Goodwill in one fell swoop. I'm saying you got to kind of get ruthless about it. You kind of fall in love with your darling junk, but it's still junk. And honestly, you need to clean house. It brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 7. Um, It's a really strange verse in my my mind. Because, like Samuel, why would you even have to say this? But look closely at verse 3. Samuel said to all the people of Israel, If you want to return to the Lord with all your hearts, get rid of your foreign gods and your images of Ashtoreth. What? I mean, what? Like, do we have to say this? If, if you really want to return to the Lord with all your heart, like, like he's got to explain this, then you're going to have to get rid of all your idols. Amen. What are they doing with idols? Your foreign gods. Again, that's just the gods they picked up along the way as they traveled, as they met new people, as they wandered through the wilderness. They just accumulated junk. They accumulated gods. 
Images of Astrith. Who's Astrith? Astrith is kind, y'all have heard of the god Baal in the Old Testament? Well, Astrith is kind of Baal's consort, Baal's girlfriend, Baal's baby mama, you, you, you know? Astrith was the consort of Baal, the kind of fertility god and goddesses. And Astrith was worshipped with these long, thin poles. And the people of Israel would have Astrith poles. I don't know if they were serious about it. I guess they just thought they were, you know, covering all their bases. I mean, God's God, and he's a good God, but you know, at the same time, Maybe there's something to this asterisk business. You know, I, I do want to have grandkids and I want my garden to grow. It can't hurt anything to have a fertility goddess standing up behind the garage, you know? How do the people of Israel accumulate gods and idols? I don't know. I, I don't know how to answer that except to say it, it must be one of the most natural things in the world for the people of God, people like us, to just uh, let the spiritual junk pile up in our lives to the point where we crowd out the Lord. If you want to return to the Lord with all your heart, you're going to have to remove some of the other things that are presently taking up room in your heart. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I don't know what it is that's taking up the room in your heart. But if you want to love the Lord with all your heart, you're going to have to do some spiritual death cleaning. I don't think a revival's ever happened that didn't involve a ruthless death cleaning of the church. We have to be serious about it. So uh, the Israelites got rid of their images of Baal and Ashtoreth and worshipped only the Lord. And Samuel told them, gather all of Israel to Mitzpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. They gathered at Mitzpah and in a great ceremony drew water from a well and poured it out before the Lord. They also went without food all day and confessed that they had sinned against the Lord. They confessed that they had sinned. When's the last time you had a real good old-fashioned confession. I mean, I can go further. When's the last time in your life you even said you were sorry and meant it? I mean, honestly, I'm asking. Because we all make mistakes every day. Would you, not, would you not confess that? Don't you mess up every day of your life? Don't you say things you never meant to say? Don't you do things you never meant to do? Don't you break promises that you, you didn't really intend to break a promise, but yet you, you didn't do what you said you would do? I mean, aren't all of us guilty of all of these things? And yet, when's the last time you actually said you were sorry about anything? When's the last time you apologized to your spouse for anything? When's the last time you apologized to anybody for anything? I'm just saying, it's just what? Revival death cleaning comes down to, you have to be willing to be honest about what you've allowed to accumulate in your own heart. One day, uh, uh, my friend Jack, Jack Scott, and I were in high school together. Jack drove a little yellow MG, which I thought was so cool. I drove a gray Chevette. 
Any of you ever drive a Chevette? Yeah, I'm like, that's where you learn to pray. Lord, let me get up this hill. Please let me get. <laughs> Chevettes were disposable cars. They were created, they were designed to be disposable. They would not make it up a hill. And by hill, I mean like speed bump. <laughs> I mean, if it was an actual hill, you just, the car would just. I mean, it was just terrible, terrible. So I would ride with Jack in that yellow MG any chance I had. It was so cool. I felt so cool. So one day we, we went to, uh, I was about to say the new mall. You, you know I'm an old man when I say, we're going to the new mall. Uh, Greenwood Mall's been there, what, 50 years? So we went to the new mall and, uh, and parked there right in front. Um, we were just going to go in real fast and out, in and out, because we were young and we do everything fast. So we just thought we're going to go in and out real fast. But there weren't any close parking places, so we took a handicap spot. Don't, y'all, don't, I know, I know. (laughs) So we took a handicap spot. We were 17 and 18, you know, young and awesome and in a hurry. So we parked in a handicap spot. Uh, There weren't any handicapped people around in our defense. I didn't see anybody. And I thought, we'll be back before any handicapped person arrives. I was wrong. So uh, as it turned out, Jack and I were leaving the mall, and we were getting in the car. And we'd only been inside for, I promise, a few minutes. But there was this lady with a walker. And she was coming from across the parking lot. She parked far away. And she saw us. And she started yelling. I mean, for a handicapped lady, she had some fire. <laughs> and she, she started walking toward us, and she was screaming at the top of her voice, shame, shame, like, like, like Granny Clampett, shame, shame. And she was pushing that walker toward us. I'm thinking, Jack, hurry, you know, get in this car. You know, we got to get out of this place for this crazy lady because she's screaming, shame, shame. She's screaming, shame. And then she gets up close to us, and she continues to scream like she was far away from us. And she said, you boys ought to be ashamed. You ought to be ashamed. She said that word, it seemed like a thousand times. Shame, you ought to be ashamed. You're healthy boys. You've got good legs. You've got all the strength and health in the world. And you took a handicapped parking place and I have to walk all the way from the backside of the parking lot. And then she told us how many of her joints were artificial and how much pain she was in and how we ought to be ashamed. And I'll be really honest with you. I was ashamed. I was really ashamed. It didn't seem like that much when we did it. But when I saw her, you know, little lady coming out with the walker, screaming shame, um, we needed to be ashamed, you know? Um, I think shame is what's missing in our culture. Nobody's ashamed anymore of things that, that ought to be shameful, you know? We celebrate things. I mean, we literally celebrate things now that a generation ago you wouldn't have even spoken about out loud. We throw whole parades now 
for things that in, in one day, in a previous day, our grandparents would not have even spoken with words to describe. They wouldn't have had words to describe, except maybe shame. Shame. You, you ought to be ashamed. When's the last time you felt that? When's the last time you thought about what you had done and how it affected other people, and then you thought about yourself and you felt shame? Because I think there's something healthy about that. As a matter of fact, I think there's, there's something that's gone very dead in your heart when you no longer have that, that, that shame, that, that, that guilt. Now, I'm not saying you're supposed to wallow in that. I mean, Scripture says there is no condemnation for now for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. There's no condemnation. Jesus doesn't want me to walk around in guilt and shame, but at the very same time, he doesn't want me to walk around in my sin. It's when he sets me free and delivers me from my sin that I get set free from guilt and shame. You see, in our culture and in many of our churches, We've kept our sin, we've just left behind our shame. So now there's no shame for anything. There's no guilt for anything. And I'm just saying, we're never going to do the kind of cleaning that revival would require. We're never going to experience what the people of God experienced here at Mitzpah. We're never going to know the newness of a revived life until we are willing to look ourselves in the mirror and see ourselves for what we are and see all of the sin and shame that is accumulated in our hearts and be ready before the Holy Spirit to get rid of it, to, to allow the Holy Spirit to do a, a radical, ruthless cleaning of our hearts. You're going to come to Jesus with all of your heart. You have to make some room in your heart. And we have let a lot of things accumulate that need to go. In the middle of the story, it, it almost seems like the story's got mixed up because it starts out, it's a revival story, and then all of a sudden, it's a, another war with the Philistine story. I mean, what? I mean, like I said, man, those Philistines and the Israelites, man, they, they've been fighting through the whole Bible, and they're still fighting. And you'd probably think that maybe the Philistines would have a little respect for them having this revival and all. I mean, they've gathered there at Mitzpah with their new judge, Samuel. You think the Philistines would just recognize that they need a little space, but no. Do you understand? This is actually a, an amazing gift of timing for the enemy because they know that this is the moment to pounce. This is the moment to attack. This is the moment to reignite the war, you know? So never be surprised by this. Our enemy, the devil, he doesn't have anything to do but watch us. He doesn't have a full-time job. You are his full-time job. Our churches are his full-time job. It's all he's doing is waiting around for an opportunity. He's roaming to and fro like a lion is what the scripture says. He's our enemy. It's just waiting for that moment when we no longer thinking about him, we, we take our eyes off of, of him, and then in that moment, you know, he is going to pounce. 
I think our church right now, I can speak to Woodburn, is really, really close to God doing something really, really great. And I know that the devil is rearing up. You know, he does not want that. I mean, just, just so the guests know, Woodburn Baptist Church this year, we've never had this many salvations in a year. In one year, we've never had this many baptisms in a solid year. And it's still, you know, we still got year left. I'm excited about that. I love that. The devil hates that. You know the devil hates that. Do you not understand that, that right there on the threshold of revival, that's when the devil you know, launches his offense? That's when the devil launches his attack? Now, I'm not saying the devil's going to move in and join our church. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not each other that we're ever going to fight. It's the devil who is our enemy, but he will do anything he can to stop what God is doing. And so in the middle of this revival, the Philistines roll in for battle. They roll in at that moment. And the people manage to do the one thing they're supposed to do. And it's just simply don't stop praying. Don't stop pleading with the Lord. Do not take your eyes off the Lord to start watching for the enemy. Just focus on the Lord. Don't stop praying. Don't let anything stop us from doing what God has called us to do right here. You know? And then one more thing. Uh, Samuel took a large stone and placed it there between the towns of Mitzpah and Jeshana, and he named it Ebenezer. It means stone of help, it does. That's what the word means. But, but it means two things, really, because it's also the name of a place. What place was that? First Samuel chapter 4. Yeah, uh, Ebenezer was the, the place of their defeat all those years ago. So oddly, Samuel makes this memorial stone a reminder of two things, both how badly they had been defeated in the past and how far the Lord has brought them since. I grew up in AA meetings, but I didn't know it. My, my granddaddy was L.D. Pearson. Uh, my grandfather was an alcoholic. I didn't know that either. Um, all I knew was that if I spent the night with him on Saturday nights, which I liked doing, I got to go to his meeting, which I think was at the Presbyterian Church in Franklin back in the day, down in the basement. So in my mind, I just thought we were going to church. My granddaddy never went to church, but he went to his meeting, and I thought that was church because it was in a church, and it felt like church. I just remember being a kid and there being cake because in the meeting, all the men would sit around a table, and my, and my grandfather would be among the men around that table. Most of them were old, and I never really understood what was going on around those tables because they would tell stories with real deep, soft, low voices. Almost like if they, if they told the story too loud, the story would come back, and so they would almost whisper the stories. And as a child, I'd be, become quickly lost and bored in the story, so I would go and be in the kitchen with the women where the food was, where the cake was. I remember 
sometimes sitting out there with, with the men and watching my grandfather cry. Again, he never went to church. But he would sit there and cry, and he would talk about what the Lord had done for him. He never talked about the Lord, except at his meeting. One night he talked about being in such a bad place that he drank rubbing alcohol. And I didn't know what that was, except I think that's what was in our medicine cabinet, you know. And I thought, why would he drink that? And it was a long time before I realized where I actually was. I was in AA. My father, my grandfather at one point had been an alcoholic, a horrible drunk. But he said that the Lord had a, set him free from that. So in a strange way, those meetings on that Saturday night, it was the place where they would gather and they would tell the stories of their defeat. All the times in which they would drink and they would do things that they would regret until the day that they would die. My grandfather being so desperate, he would drink rubbing alcohol. I mean, they would talk about their defeat, but at the very same time, every Saturday night, that meeting was victory. Because that's not who they were anymore. That's not what my grandfather was doing anymore. He wasn't desperate anymore. He wasn't drinking anymore. But sometimes there was a kind of power in remembering where you were when God found you and how far he's brought you. So here in this revival moment, Samuel stops and sets up a stone and he names it Ebenezer. He names it Ebenezer, which means from every, you know, from all the generations forward, when they get to that stone, they're going to think about two things. First off, they're going to have to remember the defeat that happened at Ebenezer. They're going to have to remember that. That's when they lost. That's when they lost the battle and everything else. That's when they lost the Ark of the Covenant. That's when the nation of Israel was plunged into a darkness and into a humiliation that lasted for generations. They're going to have to remember that. But also Samuel gave it a new meaning too. He he called it the stone of help. Ebenezer means stone of help, which is a way of saying, yeah, but but look how far the Lord has brought me. I, I just wonder... If in your life right now, if, if, if you set up an Ebenezer like that, if you would stop and just sort of remember where you were when God found you, just kind of remember how far he's brought you and be able to thank him for where you are now. Do you know what I'm saying? That there is revival in that. It's just revival in, in marking those kinds of moments because the problem comes when we just sort of go through life and don't mark moments like that. The problem comes when we just go through our life without thinking a whole lot about what God is doing, where he's leading us or where we've come from. We just sort of get lost in our lives and the busyness of it, even in the busyness of church. We can get so busy and caught up in in all the craziness that goes with church that we forget that God is doing work in my life, in your life, and in this place. We, We just forget. And in our forgetting, we just begin to let things pile up. Anger and resentment and bitterness and habits and hangups and hurts. And and before long, our hearts are so crowded 
filled with things that are not useful for us, filled with things that are only taking up space. It's the mess of our lives. But revival always gives you that opportunity to sweep the house, to clean out the drawers, to uh, let it all go. Let it go. Mark the moment, this moment. I am not the person God wants me to be, but I'm not the person I used to be either. He's brought me this far. He's brought me through some things, and he'll take me through everything else too, you know. Mark the moment. The Scandinavian culture, they call it death cleaning. It's when you get really, really serious about uh, just cleaning out the mess of your life. I don't think there's any word like that in all of Scripture, but every time revival happens, people have to uh, begin to remove everything in their heart that takes up space, captures your attention, your affection, everything in your life that is not Christ. Let it go. Love him alone. Serve him alone. Mark this moment. I mean, he brought me this far, but he will take me as far as he wants me to go. If I will love him and follow him with my whole heart. I'm just saying, brothers and sisters, you're going to have to clean your own house if revival's going to come to this house. Pray with me. Hey everyone, this is Tim Harris. I'm the pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church and this is our weekly podcast. Hope it encourages you. Hope it makes you want to be closer to Jesus and more like him. Hope you enjoy this sermon. And if you want to know more about us, find us online at woodburnbaptist.org.